Hello, and welcome to a special episode of In-Depth. I'm Jason Futch, and I'm happy to have you along as I take you all back to an interview that I did last year. It was with Rosemary Norris Southward, who is a sister of James Norris. For those of you who listened to the Season 1 episode on James, we talked about his disappearance, how he booked a flight under an assumed name, had over $10,000 in cash, and flew to Miami in hopes of purchasing Colombian-grade marijuana. However, that was not the case, and he met a fate unknown until 1976, when a heavy equipment operator working in rural Dixie County, Florida, located his remains in a wooded area off Highway 19. It would not be until late 2010 when James's remains would be positively identified by an inquisitive investigator with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Shortly after, James's sister Rosemary and other sister Kathy Norris were able to travel down to Florida to pick up James's remains so that way he could rest in peace beside his mother Esperanza in a cemetery in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, in this interview, I had an opportunity to get to know Rosemary, to get to know James, his story, his life, and I am pleased to know Rosemary as a friend, and she was wonderful to talk to. The original recording was over two hours long, but I'm giving you guys the edited original version that we released on YouTube back in April of 2019. So with that, for, with that being said, here is today's episode of In-Depth, featuring Rosemary Norris Southward. Today's show is sponsored by Anchor FM and CrimeWatchers.net. Here is the interview with Rosemary Norris Southward. Today I am joined by Rosemary Norris Southward the sister of James Norris, who disappeared in 1974 after leaving the Bay Area of California for the depths of Florida. His remains would be found over 200 miles away in 1976, but would not be identified until 2010. We are going to go in-depth about the investigation and how Rosemary continues to cope with James's death and how her and others advocate for the missing, the unidentified, and the murdered in his name. Rosemary, thanks for joining me on In-Depth. How are you today? Thank you, uh, Jason. I'm good. Thanks for inviting me and allowing me to um, share with your audience the uh, story about James and what this experience has been like for my family. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, first, let's talk about James. What was he like? What was it like being the little sister of James Berkeley Morris? <laughs> uh, well, um yeah, I was, I was, uh, you know, kind of always in awe of, we called him Jimmy. Uh, his name was James, but he was known to family as Jimmy. So that's what I'll probably, you know, uh, end up calling him during this interview. So sure. he, he was, uh, you know what, the best way I describe him really is to say that Jimmy was, he was a real, he was a magnet. He was. I guess he was a force of nature in a way too. He was he was super smart. Uh, he was kind of had this rock star look 
to him, kind of like Jim Morrison type. Um, he was very opinionated, you know, when he was young, he was kind of a bit of, you know, it was a handful uh, <laughs> <Sure>. for my <laughs> for my mom, especially. Um, he had this like wicked sense of humor. He was um, always, you know, the prankster and he, um, he just had that kind of sense of humor. He was a little stinker sometimes when he was young and he was just, you know, a lot of fun. Very, he liked the room. He had a big personality. Um, and he had that kind of personality that really drew people to him. Um, the, the ladies sure liked him, I'll say that. <laughs> uh, he liked them right back. Uh, he was a nature lover, uh, loved animals. He had this beautiful Afghan hound uh, dog named Casalia. He always had a bunch of cats and that kind of thing. He was just um, kind of a larger than life sort of type, I think you could say. Um, he filled the room, you know? Wow. It, it sounds like it, you know, based on what I read about him, it sounds like he could get along with probably anybody, even a pole in the wall. <laughs> yeah. Well, he didn't always, he didn't always play nicely with authority. Sure. Um, I'll say that. And that's just part of it is just, you know, he came up during the sixties. He mm -hmm. was, you know, born in 49, but he was a teenager during the 60s. And, um, you know, the, the, there was a lot of uh, questioning of authority back then. Oh. Thumbing your nose at, you know, at authority. And he didn't shy away from that. He, you know, he was defiant. He was, you know, strong in his beliefs. He mm -hmm. was fervently anti-war. Um, he had good friends, though, that, that went over to Vietnam to serve. And um, he was always very supportive of these young guys who were, um, had to, that answered the call. It's not that he disrespected them or anything like that. He he didn't, but he uh, really had a problems with the whole, you know, reason that we were being, going to war and, sure. and seeing his friends go, you know, being pulled out of their lives and, and made to go, you know, across the, across the world. Oh, I, I, and I, and, you know, I think history even nowadays points out that, you know, going into Vietnam was definitely not a smart idea. Uh, and, and I remember reading about, you know, the, the protests at Berkeley and in San Francisco and the Bay area, I, I believe it was extremely unpopular in that area. Was it not? Oh, Absolutely. I, I can remember him being part of protests. And I remember one time he had, I found this box and it was filled with like buttons and flyers and signs and all this stuff oh. and stickers and, and all kinds of stuff. There was this, uh, I think they said something like um, March on San Francisco or something like this. It was some sort of, I, I can't remember now what the, what it was, but he had given me a little stack of stickers and he said, and I was just wow. a kid, said, I was going to Catholic school. And he goes, here, go stick these on the wall when sister's not looking, you know? <laughs> I was like, oh. okay. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He, he was, he was a radical in many ways. Um, he, he was educated. He had graduated from San Francisco State University. Nice. Uh, he was living at the time of his disappearance. He was living 
in an apartment in the city of San Francisco near the Haight-Ashbury, just on the other side of the panhandle of Golden Gate Park. And he was teaching, at the time he was teaching English as a second language classes at an adult school in the city. So immigrants wanting to learn English would sign up for these classes through an adult school, John Adams Adult School. And Jimmy was one of the teachers. So, and he was also, I mean, when he wasn't teaching, he would, he continued to take classes. He would take like creative writing. He was always taking art classes. He was part of this, you know, back then the natural food movement was really blowing up. Yeah. He was big time into that. He would go to these local co-ops, you know, natural foods, co-ops things. Sure. You know, we, we see you go to the grocery store and you can buy any of this stuff now. But back then it was Mm -hmm. like a revolutionary act to eat that way, you know. Yeah. He was part of all that. that. (laughs) And um, if I could just tell you this one other part, this was like super important to Jimmy was like, Mm -hmm. he also... He was like a genius when it came to um, fixing VW bugs, Volkswagen oh, bugs. Awesome. He, he could, he could like one in his sleep. I swear, he was always <laughs> wrenching on bugs. He had, you know, all of his mm. buddies. Everybody drove one, you know. Oh sure. And yeah. you know, all of his friends, if they needed some help, their cars were, you know, not running right. He would fix it. But the problem was, is every last one of these friends of his and he were chronically broke. They never had any money. So it's not like he could earn a living doing it. Sure. So that leads to what this whole situation kind of happened. Uh, the, the whole crux of this thing, and that was mm-hmm. that he was selling pot mm-hmm. to supplement his income. And that's what led him into, you know, the situation that ultimately he found himself in. So, you know, even doing it big time though, I mean, it was nothing, you know, he wasn't a big player or anything, but he was, you know, buying a pound of weed or whatever. And back then in the city Mm -hmm. in San Francisco and California, the pot that they were getting was mostly from Mexico. Sure. And people who, you know, it's like to this day, if you're really in a, you know, an aficionado or whatever you say, <laughs> you you like to have just like a wine connoisseur. You don't want to stick to one kind of wine all the time. You want to sample a trial. Oh, <laughs> <Different> yeah. <laughs> things. So I'm sure that that's what it was, was mm-hmm. that mainly what we had out here at that time was Mexican pot. I guess that uh. someone was coming in from Hawaii, like Maui or whatever, or you could get Colombian or, or Jamaican, <laughs> but it was at a high price. Oh, that was so, before. But I don't, I don't want to get ahead of the story because I know you're going to ask me stuff about that later. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> well, so, um, anywho, uh, so let's let's discuss the day that uh, he went to Florida. So, did he tell you guys in advance that he was heading down to Florida for something? No. He, so, as I recall, um, he didn't tell us at all where he was going. He just said he was going to take a little vacation and he brought... Casalia, his Afghan owned, mm-hmm. to our house. We didn't live in San Francisco. We lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. We lived um, in Fairfield, California, which is okay. in Salon County, yep. one of nine Bay Area counties. Yep, very so familiar. <laughs> that's where my family lives. And 
Jimmy was living in the city. So he mm. comes over this day, the beginning of October, and he brings Caselli with him. And he just says, oh, he's going to take a little trip and will we take care of his dog for him? So I was 13 at the time, the youngest of six. And uh, my sisters and I, we were all excited to have her there. We, you know, she's a real pretty dog. And she was, you know, just, we were just happy to have her to take care of her. Sure. So, and, but, but no, he did not tell us where he was going. Mm. So what were, what were the feelings? Like, uh, like when, when you guys, like, let's say for instance, when he, when you guys got the postcard from English, Florida, what were y'all's thoughts at the time? Yeah. So, okay. So he, he leaves to go on this vacation. He tells mom, um, I'll be back to get her in like five days, I think he said. Mm-hmm. So before those five days were up, probably within four days, we get this strange postcard in the mail. And that's when we knew, found out that he was in Florida. And I remember we were just like super surprised on, you know, way on the other side of the country. None of us had ever been in a plane, let alone, you know, gone that far. So, um, but the weirdest thing was, it was like this little fishing village, you know, English. Mm-hmm. That sure. was like, where, where even what? That? You know, <laughs> he figured because he was flying from San Francisco to Miami, mm-hmm. we would think that he was, you know, if that's if if he, you know, got on this plane in San Francisco and he found out later he flew to Miami, so he would have expected. Well, that's the vacation destination or Orlando or whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, where where was this English, right? So it was like um, the, the postcard felt weird just based on that. I mean, because the post, it was pretty generic sort of, you know, I'll be home soon, that kind of thing. Sure. It didn't say anything particularly strange or anything. But so, um you know, he, he didn't come home on time. It's five days came and went, and then, you know, seven days, and then, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so my mom was the one who started getting really worried. You know, like I said, I was 13. You, you know, you're pretty wrapped up in your own stuff. You're oblivious to anybody else's, you know, concerns at that age. You're pretty self-absorbed, you know. So um, my mom started getting more and more and more worried. Um, I, I guess for us, I just felt like, you know, he, Jimmy wasn't particularly known as being very predictable. So it didn't strike me as odd that he didn't do what he said he was going to do initially, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but my mom, she had always had this sort of ear, sort of sixth sense, you know. It seemed like she always seemed to get, you know know when something bad was going on <laughs> so she started getting worried and then real worried you know when it about 10 days had passed and so and it was pretty much up to her she was a single mom you know six kids and she had to work and take care of us and all this stuff but she had this deep growing sort of fear and it started building and it got to be uh really really scary just because I could tell, you know, it's like mom was always solid, strong, mm-hmm. very, you know, stable one that was our rock, you know, but she started getting really, really afraid. 
and it was scary. She was agitated. She was trying sure. to get people to listen and everybody go, oh, no, he's going to do fine. He's turn up, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and that just kind of got her agitated. She couldn't get anybody to pay attention. You know? Sure. And, and that's uh, where I want to go to is the police. Now, how... How did the police in Fairfield respond, or rather the police in San Francisco respond, uh, when you guys were trying to report James missing, considering he hadn't been home in quite a while? Like, he hadn't, I mean, he he made no indication he was back from Florida, and so you guys are filing the missing persons report. What happened next? Yeah, yeah, so, okay, so one of my brothers took my mom to the city, to San Francisco, and took her to the police department. She filed a missing person report with San Francisco PD. Probably, I guess I would, I think it was probably within a couple weeks of Jimmy leaving. Mm-hmm. Definitely within a couple weeks, but, um, and so, so my brother drove her to the city and she filed a missing person report. But as I recall, she, she was getting the runaround and it was really, you know, causing her more and more and more anxiety because, you know, she reported it through San Francisco PD because he lived in the city and she felt like she had to do it there. Um, And then San Francisco PD was telling her, well, the flight was to Miami, right? So call Miami. So she calls, um, I think back then it was still considered just Dade County. Yeah. But... Mm -hmm. So she puts in a call and she's communicating with law enforcement there in Dade and, and they're telling her, well, you got this postcard, right? Well, from Inglis. Well, Inglis is in Levy County up along mm-hmm. the Gulf of Florida yep. on the on the west coast of Florida. Call Levy County Sheriff's Office. So she's getting this Jeez. around. She's, you know, it's like screaming into the wind. You can't get any anybody to listen, you know. So... Um, that's what ended up happening. The report, the official police report was filed in 1974. But, you know, you got to understand in 1974, we didn't have the same sort of network that we have today in law enforcement. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, um, you know, like now the way it works, you you have, you know, the NCIC, the FBI mm-hmm. is clearing house, yep. the National Crime Information Center. Well, they have, but back then in 74, some, in 1974, CIC didn't include a missing person file. That wasn't added till 75. Right. Missing persons were not part of NCIC. So we didn't have the same sort of network that we have today for missing persons. Oh, certainly. So. And then also you have to consider too, Levy County, from my personal experience there, it's it's very rural. It, there's really nothing there, and I could probably guarantee you there was probably like maybe five people employed with the sheriff's office there at the time, probably. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I I had I still have my mom's notes and her, you know, record of the communications that she had with the sheriff and and mm-hmm. you know just all of her efforts to. Um, get some get some help from law enforcement but at the same time you know jimmy was an adult he was 24 years old Mm -hmm. at the time um and there's no law against running away sure there's you know it's not illegal 
for anybody to run away, really. But right. you know, it's uh, but it was unusual. So for, but it was unusual for James to just suddenly run away like that, though, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's kind of like a needle in a haystack. If <laughs> you know, if someone says, "Hey, my son," you know, went to Florida. He, you know, he's we got this postcard but it's like okay but where do i start ma'am you know <laughs> oh certainly so at this point you guys decided to basically take this investigation into your own hands and one of the first steps was hiring a private investigator when did that uh when did you guys decide to do that um okay so when when all of this happened my dad was um was out of the country he was on vacation he and his wife so when he returned, my mother said, hey, I need help with this. Uh, and by the time, you know, there was already a few weeks had gone by. So she or, or he both, you know, decided, OK, he would hire he would pay for a private investigator. So that happened. I would, it, it definitely happened within a month of Jimmy uh, leaving. So somewhere probably three weeks a month. That's when the private investigator, my dad hired a PI from uh, San Francisco who um, took it into, you know, had, he worked for a company that had locations throughout the country. So he was sure. able to, you know, have um, coworkers in um, Florida do legwork too on the case. Nice. So. Uh, yeah. So but immediately, what the what the PI in San Francisco did, though, was he started. My mom said, "Here are my brother's friends. These are his. You know, this is roommates. This is you know one of his former girlfriends, or this is you know his buddies and all this stuff. Here are their phone numbers." So they, the PI, started bugging them, started you know showing up at their door, started calling them, and then and then that's when they were. Um, started you know kind of revealing the details of why jimmy went to florida sure so. and 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 what advances uh and so on that note what advances did the private investigator make when he was like interrogating james Jim, james's friends well he um so he when the investigation wrapped up he gave um my father the um his conclusions to his investigation and so he um you know had interviewed key people and wrote down what they said so he documented these things that were said at the time he uh figured out that jimmy had gone to florida his friends had put together some money he had these you know friends functioning as investors in this purchase and they had pulled their money and they went to Florida. He went to Florida as the one to cure this large amount of Colombian marijuana. So my mom had provided these names. Jimmy had um, certain, you know, he had like an address book or whatever that had these, you know, people's names in it and stuff like that. So um, that's what the investor did and, and just based on the information my mother gave him, mm. he had done this investigation. So were they ever able to connect uh, how James established contact in Florida? Like how, like how did he even know there were 
people in Florida selling marijuana. Yeah, so that that was something that was very mysterious to us. Um, I I believe um, in in the current investigation, what is happening in present time, I think I believe they have um, puzzled that out. They I think they know that information now, but um, that's not something that they shared with us. You know, sure. it's, they they're very close. I mean, they're very, very careful not to divulge much to they don't want to compromise your investigation so i think that they've figured out a whole lot <laughs> sure and and now you said that the marijuana uh had come from colombia right that's right so that was big back then so was in the gulf area of florida so was there any connection to uh pablo escobar in this uh in this case you think wow i don't Oh, that question's never been asked. I've never really considered <laughs> the Pablo as, yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, we know he was the cocaine king, but I understand, too, he was also dabbing with marijuana industry as well. Yeah. That, well, you know, the thing is, is that... Um, there were a lot of, like, especially these areas that that we were able to identify along the Gulf Coast of Florida. These were people who made their living, you know, um, they were fishermen and they had timber industry mm -hmm. there. Um, I'm talking about, like, in the area around Levy County or Dixie County yeah. or Taylor County. These These were areas that... You know, they had people who were kind of fish are up there. What did they do? What kind of salmon yeah. or no? Uh, basically like bass and trout. Uh, pretty much that's the, that, that's the fish out there. <laughs> well, they, so whatever these, the, the fishermen out there, I mean, this was a, an industry where people worked hard all oh, day yeah. and some days they made money and some days they didn't. And right. didn't have, they didn't have a whole lot of money flooding in from, you know, tourism mm. no, and all no, that no. stuff. So it was prime spot for, um, for drug mm. marijuana uh, smuggling come in and just, you know, those were largely unpoliced coastline mm. there. Sure. Miles and miles and miles of coastline that was unpoliced. And it was extremely remote. Um, people there who were, you know, hardworking people were easily, you know, convinced, hey, you know, can you help us? Can you take your shrimp boat out and help us unload this mothership loaded full of Colombian grass, you know, and you make thousands of dollars in one night just help us out. And the smugglers endeared themselves to the locals and mm -hmm. they were kind of like, Robin Hoods, you know, they were sure. greatly appreciated. They were, and they worked themselves into um, actually corrupting or, you know, some higher ups and people in positions of authority allowed themselves to be corrupted into mm -hmm. um, supporting smuggling instead of upholding the law. Sure. Um, there's a real history of that. But I'll have to say this, like just one year prior to Jimmy going to Florida for that purpose, the the largest drug marijuana bust in U.S. history happened right there where my brother was 
in that area where he was murdered. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, it was, you know, a huge quantity of marijuana was, uh, a, the boat came in to unload and got kind of stuck hmm. in the mud. <laughs> <laughs> and and a huge amount of marijuana was seized and it was the biggest bust in U.S. history. It My was, goodness. it was, uh, and the people that were arrested for it, they were called the Steam Hatchy Seven. Ah, so, I think I yeah. heard about them actually. So, so uh, moving on uh, now, going, you know, let's say about a year in, wh- what was the feeling like? Like, uh, when, when, when was the moment your mother conceded that James might not be coming back home? Um, I think that it was definitely when, I mean, I think it was a gradual process, but when the PI, I I remember her saying she was so upset because the private investigator pretty much said, you know, well, he might be, you know, he might've taken the money and run. And my mother said, no, he did not. He was not, Mm. he, my brother was not that kind of person who would pull a dirty trick like that. And that's a hell of an accusation to make too. Well, I think that it was, you know, I think what it came up, what, what it boiled down to was it was inconclusive what happened to him. Mm -hmm. So the guy, you know, having to say something, says okay either he took off and he's living the good life somewhere else or he's dead right. you know <laughs> sure so or, you know what other conclusions could you reach i guess but my mom had this sense that crept in oh it, you know every day and it was clear he wasn't coming back you know it's like okay three weeks yeah there's I'm definitely wrong one month he's not i'm not ever going to see my son again and and so when mom started expressing those sort of fears, um, I remember getting upset by it. It pissed me off. I was like, how can you give up on him like that? You know, I, I was annoyed. I was pissed. I was sort of irritated by it that she was being, you know, I'm, in my mind, I'm a kid and I'm thinking, why do you have to go to that extreme, mom? You know, you know, Jimmy's, he, he's a free bird. He just does all, he's not you know the reliable typeies but she knew that he would never do this to her he my brother loved my mom and there's no way that he would put her through that sort of hell so i i would so but if you were asking me you know at what point that was i would say probably within three weeks of his disappearance definitely by a month it was complete anguish for my mother it was Mm -hmm. It was panic. It was, you know, it was a really uh, dark time in my family's, you know. Sure. And so I remember reading on the website, uh, which uh, for those of you listening, Rosemary has a website dedicated to her brother, which is www.whokilledjamesnorris.com. And you can get the complete story on this on this case from beginning to end. And one of the things that I had read in the in the website was a dream that your mother had, or was it, it, was, it was an interpretation rather, oh, yeah. of James? That Could you fill me in? And you know what? It became hugely significant later. Sure. But 
at the time, I, I still remember it like it was yesterday. It was, you know, sitting in the kitchen, just kind of looking at the newspaper. And my mother, I, you'll have to understand, she, she lapsed into this deep depression. She had to go to work. Uh, she had to, you know, carry on. She had six, I mean, well, five kids at that point. Um, she had obligations. So she had to continue going to work and all this stuff. But she, there was no light in her eyes she was just utterly you know beaten beaten up and so one day i'm sitting in the kitchen it's like 18 months after jimmy disappeared my sisters and i kind of put our heads together we said that was like 18 months that she went through this dark phase you know Mm -hmm. so one day she walks in the kitchen and i look up at her and instantly i'd seen her face it was then was different about her and she said, um, Jimmy came to me last night. And I said, what? What do you, you know, what do you mean? Did you see his ghost or something? Or did you have like a dream about him? And she said she was sound asleep in her bed. And all of a sudden she sat up, bolt, bolt upright, you know, and, and she said he was in the room. And I said, well, did you see his ghost? And she said, no, no, it wasn't like that. I didn't even hear of a voice she said but he she could feel him moving through the room and he imparted this message to her that was i'm at peace i'm okay i don't want you to worry about me anymore and she was just filled with this sort of you know joy and peace and and Mm -hmm. and she just like from that point on it was a like a switch had been flipped it was different for my mom. She was like really come back to life, you know. Sure. And how did that make you and your sisters feel? Um, I, well, I knew by that point in my life that, and you know, by then I, I guess I was 15 years old, and I had been through enough of life with my mother to know that I trusted her when she said that she had these sort of, you know, spiritual experiences or supernatural, however you mm-hmm. say. Sure. I had seen my mom in the before, and I felt like, wow, that, you know, because I had had dreams about Jimmy too. I was, you know, very tuned into that. And, but to see my mom come back to life like that, at that point, I was like, I, I just felt so glad that she had had that experience just because she suffered so much. And, and so later on, you're introduced to a computer. You got a computer, and when you got this computer, what was the turning point in this investigation? Yeah, so, okay, so, you know, as I say on my website, it was like this search for my brother kind of was in two separate parts. Originally, Mm -hmm. it was, you know, my mother and her, all of her, you know, efforts for phone calls, the notes she took, the, you know, the all the sleuth things she did, the private investigator and working with law enforcement. So that was, you know, what happened back then immediately when it was, um, when Jimmy disappeared. And then I kind of, I picked it up sometime in the mid nineties. I get, I got a computer, didn't know how to use it. So (laughs) I started um, putting him up on, putting Jimmy's case up on any kind of missing person website I could find. I started like using the computer, I kind of learned how to use a computer by searching for my brother. I was learning how to 
search using names, you know, and mm-hmm. or um, looking up um, people named James Norris, you know. Yeah. I just I held out some hope that he was still alive out there. Um, I didn't. I never told my mother that I was doing that sort of thing. She she was excited about me taking over and using the computer to help. But I didn't even tell her that I was also kind of thinking, okay, well, let me, I can't discount it out of hand that he's still alive. Sure. So I'm going to go ahead and, and go at that angle too. So, so look, that was in the mid nineties when, when I was doing that, I started. And then I, I heard about, you know, I researched how to find a missing person. And mm-hmm. then later there were these websites like the Doe Network that mm-hmm. featured page after page after page of all these missing people and then on the other side you could look at all these john and jane O's, and you mm. could separate them by geography and separate them by dates that they were missing and i would spend hours in front of that in front of the computer just looking at all these and i mean when i first saw this this is the joe network oh yes when i, when I first started looking at these pages I was completing it. It was like, uh, you know, wandering into the woods and, and expecting to see you know, a little woods full, of, and then realizing that this is a massive forest you're in the middle of. Oh, yes. And that's what the Doe Network was to me to see all those faces. It was like you couldn't go through them all, you know? Oh, no. I, I'm and still trying it, to go through them. <laughs> yeah, it was just like um, a pen. The gut, you know, it was mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, this is massive. This problem is huge. Absolutely. They call it the nation's mass disaster, silent disaster, something like that. The oh, number yes. of missing persons in our country. Mm-hmm. And, and, but each, to me, sometimes it would be so overwhelming because I look at these faces of these people I didn't know and I would think, Every one of them has a family like like ours, you know. Sure. Think of all that pain and that anguish and that heartache and, you know, those people desperate for answers. Sure. You and, know, and that, just the sadness is palpable when you look at those faces. Oh, abs- absolutely. And, you know, the, and, and the more crazy thing about it is, is that, you know, since the introduction of NamUs in 2007 I could be wrong about the year but uh, since NamUs was introduced you know now you can have an accurate count of how many missing and unidentified individuals are in your state and in California I know there are thousands of missing individuals and I believe the John and Jane Doe's are up in about the three to four hundreds whereas in Oregon uh, they just added a new John Doe, and now we're up to 151 does. Uh, however, uh, just recently they identified a Jane Doe uh, from Josephine County, Oregon. I don't, I'm not sure if you heard about it, uh, but they identified her, and she had been found in 1971. And wow, that's wonderful. Yeah, it, someone has closure. Right, and the thing is, is that technology is just amazing because it's a total game changer and you know as far as far as california it's true that that um there are more missing persons um cases in namus but that is 
I mean, from California, but that's also um, the reporting is different. It's like um, there's no mandate to report missing and unidentified to put them into NamUs nationwide. Um, but California does have more entries. Um, you know, there mm -hmm. there is more of an effort in California to um, report to to add your um, unidentified remains cases to um, NCIC and. Um, but I did want to make a quick correction. Actually, there's way more uh, missing and unidentified than I thought. There's 2,200 missing in California and 2,500 uh, unidentified in California. Yeah, and that, you know, as I said, that there's, there's uh, you know, as far as maybe another state, I, I'm not looking at NamUs right now, but I mean, maybe Arkansas or, or whatever. Um, there, just because what NamUs, the there's no mandate for agencies mm -hmm. to enter their missing persons sure. or their unidentified into NamUs. So they, you know, the true numbers are far larger oh. than what is in NamUs. So they're continuously Absolutely. adding to NamUs and eventually that will be, you know, hopefully we will be able to have, you know, every missing person and every unidentified part of NamUs um, but that's uh, not happening yet. There's there's a move towards that. Hopefully, sure. with um, legislation, will you know mandate that. But so far, it's not. Now, now since those developments had happened, where you learned more and more about John and Jane Doe's and missing people, how did that? Like, how did that fuel you into going into this advocacy work? Like, because I know you do a lot of advocacy work in the California area, area promoting NamUs and also yeah. working with missing children and adults and murder victims. Uh, could you explain more about that? Yeah, sure. So um, it, I have to kind of back up a little bit, though, because, sure. okay, so what happened was 2003 you had asked me what was the turning point yes. well actually if i have to say it was like 2003 was a really was was probably a big turning point because so i had started hearing about dna being used you know into solve crimes and and identified uh john doe's jane doe's so i said well maybe that is what we need Jimmy's case, you know, so I called Fairfield Police Department where I live in Fairfield, California. Mm -hmm. I called Fairfield PD and I said, can you tell me how I go about, you know, getting our family DNA submitted? And she said, well, let me look up your brother's missing person case. And she said, I'm, I'm sorry, but your brother's not in the missing person system. And I remember being floored. I was like, what are you talking about? This has been, you know, from 1974 and here it's 2003 and he's not in the missing person system. How could that be? I know my mother reported him. So whatever happened, I mean, as I said earlier, um, the missing person file wasn't added to NCIC, the FBI's uh, clearinghouse until a year later, until 1975. So some of those earlier cases either didn't make it into NCIC when they did start um, adding in missing persons cases, or we found, I found out much later that there were a couple of purges to NCIC's missing person file that happened. A big one happened in the 90s. 
So it's possible that Jimmy's case was purged from the system at some point. But however it happened, it was no longer in the system in 2003. So we had to start all over again, Fairfield PD. So I started working with investigators to, um, I gave them this huge amount of my mother's uh, research, the original report from the um, private investigator. And I was just so grateful that they were taking it so seriously at Fairfield Police Department. They were treating us with great respect and they took it seriously. And at that point I said, wow, this is, you know, people really do care, people who can do something about this to help. And I think that's when I first got this first wave of, you know, maybe there's ways that I can help too. So that sort of stirred the beginning stages of advocacy for me. Nice. Within me. So, so that was 2003, 2004, I finally got, um, California was one of the first, not the first, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but they, the California Department of Justice launched a DNA, uh, missing persons DNA program. And um, so family members could submit DNA, the DNA from family members would be used to create a family sample for the missing person. And then though that DNA family reference sample could be used to compare against the DNA of unidentified remains. So we did that in 2004, my whole family went down to the Fairfield Police Department they did the buckle swabs with the, you know, the long swab yeah. on the inside of the cheek. Oh yeah. And the DNA was submitted to California Department of Justice lab and took about a year, but they create the family reference sample. So, and then, you know, I still had my ear to the ground. I was still researching all this stuff in the meantime. And then about, I guess, uh, 2009 or so, um, mm-hmm. I, and I, made a um, NamUs account for myself and mm-hmm. I entered my brother's case in NamUs. So all of those things were major, you know, the three biggest turning points or part of the same turning point was, you know, beginning their investigation all over again, submitting mm-hmm. DNA to Cal DOJ, and then starting uh, with NamUs. Sure. And then, and so when all of this was going on, the fact that things had advanced over time in the last 30 years, what was your family's reaction to all this? Like they must have been excited about this whole situation and there was a chance that James could be a step closer to coming home. Yeah, um, my mom by then was starting to, um, she was starting to show signs of dementia. Sure. And then as time went on, she actually, you know, became, got to the point where she was non-communicative, but she was excited about it. My family members were all interested. I know that some families, they don't want to do DNA. Um, they don't want to submit DNA for whatever reason. Uh, there is some confusion today about, you know, the law regarding what they're going to use DNA for, you know, what are sure. they going to do with my DNA once they have it? In California, it's very very, very clearly established that DNA you submit to missing persons DNA program can't be used for any other 
the state can't use, use, you know, someone's DNA to connect them to a crime or whatever. It can only be used for these forensic comparisons with missing persons. So, I mean, with unidentified remains. So do you think, so, so do you think with that rule, there's a disadvantage in California? What do you mean? Uh, So like when you use DNA in those, in missing persons cases, uh, and not being able to use them in criminal cases, do you think that might serve as a disadvantage to the state or no? Uh, no, I mean, as far as on the family member side, the um, mm-hmm. to create that family reference sample, the DNA, the missing persons DNA database does mm-hmm. not communicate with criminal databases. Oh, like, gotcha. you know, it doesn't communicate with CODIS. Oh, the that's, that, makes, that so, makes sense. Yeah, so it's very clearly separate from it. It's the family reference samples, the DNA that the family members submit are only used to compare against the remains of um, unidentified people. Sure. So, yeah, that's actually, you know, a very strong uh, selling point for, you know, just to keep things legal and not Mm -hmm. to, you know, on anybody's rights, you know. Oh, certainly. Uh, so it's it's actually a good thing, and and I think that most states could who have DNA, missing persons DNA program also adhere to that. Sure. And so this is where we end up finding ourselves, twenty two hundred miles away from home. There is a John Doe that was yeah. found in nineteen seventy six, uh, the centennial of the United States. So tell me more about the story about the Dixie County John Doe and how in the heck did this, these investigators in, in little old Dixie County, Florida, finally connect this John Doe all the way to the Bay Area? Yeah, well, that's where modern science comes in again. And that, that was, you know, it was like, I wasn't even aware of that timeline, of course. So <laughs> here we are, you know, it was like 2009, we submitted D- the DNA, you know, and um, well, the name is entered actually 2009. Um, and what we didn't know was there was this whole timeline on the other side of the country with these skeletal remains that were discovered in Dixie County, Florida in 1976. So, um, the sheriff's office is called out to the, you know, these woods where um, a, a man on a um, piece of, uh, I'm, I don't know, it was like a big earth mover type of thing, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> sees this skull in the woods and he, he had gotten off his um, tractor or whatever it was and he sees this sunlight hitting something, making, you know, bright white reflection off from the sun so he goes up there and he sees that his skull is the top of the skull so he calls the sheriff sheriff comes out and they see what's going on there and as was standard at that time because dixie you know it was like okay these are skeletal remains this is going to need uh you know forensic resources that mm-hmm. that they don't have so they immediately called in fdle florida department of law enforcement and it just so happened the timing was perfect because we had started a program, a partnership between Florida State University and law enforcement where mm-hmm. uh, 
anthropologist at Florida State teaching law enforcement how to unearth clandestine graves and mm -hmm. homicide mm -hmm. sites in order to preserve evidence. <laughs> so the timing was and location was just right. Um, an anthropologist came out to the site and unearthed it just like it was a, a dig, a, like an anthropological, oh, archaeological sure. dig. Mm -hmm. And that's how they were able to meticulously document everything, put, you know, um, great care in uncovering the, the not only the skeletal remains, but evidence that they found at the scene, which I, I don't know what that was, but I do know there was evidence found at the scene. Wow. So, so they, you know, what better hands could they be in with, you know, this partnership that they had? And um, so the case actually was worked by FDLE, Florida Department of mm -hmm. Law Enforcement. Um, and to this day, they are the ones they work in partnership with Dixie County Sheriff's mm -hmm. Office. Um, but the, the resources and everything have been um, mostly through FDLE. They got access to all this, you know, the, the cutting sure. edge stuff and the connections with um, the scientific, the forensic community, that oh, sort yeah. of thing. They um, made great efforts actually to identify these, these mm -hmm. remains. FDLE, they had sent part of the, they had sent some of the bones to the Smithsonian Institution and they, you know, did analyses to figure out um, the gender uh, of this uh, person. They found out um, some you know, based on the condition of the bones, they could figure out that this person had, you know, uh, was probably this height, this uh, race, mm -hmm. this, you know, yeah. even, you know, had a childhood illness of this length and, sure. and all these other things. It was, it's, you know, and using, that was cutting edge stuff at the time. Oh, absolutely. Using, yeah. using a computer to, to do sort of, a, you know, scans of this and that. Yeah. And I was actually pretty, you know, in awe to find out just how strenuously they, mm -hmm. they tried. They did analysis of the teeth. Yeah. In the, you know, to figure out, they knew they could find out certain things like they knew that he, he had had, you know, dental care, good dental care. Mm -hmm. um, and and that sort of thing. So they, they were able to, you know, and I really have to give it to them for the effort that they put into it for years. Oh, yeah. and, and I'm sure you've heard <laughs> and, and I'm sure you've heard about the colleges that have been studying these kind of investigations like uh, Heather Walsh Haney over at, uh, I think it's uh, Florida Gulf Coast University where she did uh, two well-known archeological digs for human remains. One of them was the Fort Myers 8 down in Fort Myers. The There was eight unidentified skeletal remains found in this big old field uh, in Fort Myers, Florida in 07. In fact, I did an episode on that case, that's episode five of True Cold Case Files, for those of you listening. Uh, really good episode that I did. And then the other one, which believe it or not, I have a personal connection to, was the Dozier School for Boys excavation about this. Wow. Um, yeah, I heard about. Yeah, she, she was involved with that, uh, where they dug up like 60 uh, unidentified skeletal remains at an old former boys' school. 
uh, that operated for over a hundred years, and it eventually closed That's in '09. An incredibly sad story. Oh yeah. yeah, and and they were able to identify pretty much most of the remains, uh, but it definitely caused a huge nerve because I I am kind of indirectly connected to that school because my uncle used to be a uh, house parent there at the Dozier School, so uh, and he wow. re- and he remembered. Uh, how it was in the 70s because he worked there from the 70s up to the time they closed the the reform school down. And so they, you know, it it, it needed to be shut down. It was a, it was, it was a bloodbath out there. Um, But, but they're definitely into, I, yeah, but they're definitely into all of the forensics in Florida. And I'm very impressed by, by the projects that, you know, Florida Gulf Coast, South Florida, the University of Florida, Florida State, uh, they they have wonderful programs in forensic anthropology. And I could just imagine, you know, when they were working on your brother's case, what they were able to do, which leads me to my next question. When was it that you and your family found out that James Norris was the Dixie County John Doe? Yeah, so... Okay, what happened was I had been working with Fairfield Police Department. They had a cold case detective. And um, so at that point, probably been uh, in communication with detectives at Fairfield PD for seven years. And then so one day a detective calls me. This is at the very end of 2010. And he's like, Rosemary, um, I wanted to come by and talk to you about your brother's case. So I was like, if I come by and I said, sure. So he comes to the door, he comes in and he says um, to me, okay, so there were these remains found in 1976 in Florida and um, Rosemary there, it's your brother. And looked at him and I was like, I was thinking to myself, no, it's not, (laughs) you know, I yeah. felt kind of like embarrassed for oh. him. <laughs> like, no, no, it's not. And so I, you know, I'm waiting and he's giving me more details and everything like that. And um, finally, and I could, you know, by that time, I'm kind of like, my head is swimming. And he says, you know, he made, revealed some things that sort of started to convince me. And then he said, you know, Rosemary, we did a DNA comparison and the results are 69 billion to one mm. that these remains are the biological child of your mother. That's how they, that's how in this case it was done. It was saying, you know, 69 billion to one that this, these remains could have been anybody else's child, you know? Sure. So, I mean, that sounded pretty, pretty, you know, sure to me. Oh. So, so that's the way it went down was that, you know, he cut, he came to the house, the detective came to the house and told me. And when it finally hit me that it was true, I was like, I wasn't prepared for it. I mean, I hadn't thought about what that would feel like, you know. I, I hadn't prepped my brain for that possibility that ever someone could come to my house and tell me that, you know? So it was like, the only way I can describe it now is to say it was like a, 
bunch of a lifetime of emotions crashing on you in, in the matter of a minute, you know? So I was like, initially, you know, like I said, disbelief. And then there was this huge shock. And then it was like a panic wave or this sort of, you know, um, fear sort of, I don't know what that was about really, but it, and then it was like anger. That was the one I was left with was just, I was mad. I was really, Mm. really mad that someone could do this and leave my brother's body just to rot on ground. Like he's a piece of trash, you know? And I was so, and then all, and even, in the first minute, I started thinking also, I remember this, I started thinking, I'm so angry and disgusted that all of those years went by, we're talking 36 years, and someone who knew something about it would allow my mother to suffer like that, that wow. didn't come forward, that didn't, you know, do something about it, it didn't, it, it just, and I'm left. I'm I'm still mad as hell about that. That oh, there's sure. people knew about it, and and were too cowardly, worried about you know whatever, mm. worried about their reputation or their, you know, worried about them getting you know retaliated or, sure. or whatever. I think it's all a bunch of. I think that there's a lot of cowards that, you know, it just makes me mad when I think about how this devastated my mother. Oh, that this yeah. was. This, as much hardship as my mother went through in her life, and she had a very, very, very rough life, that that brought her to her knee, this solid, strong person. And that was what did it. And there's plenty of people to this day who know what happened, and they're just... So let me ask you this then. Um, was it just you sitting there that day, or was it you, your sisters, any other family members when the police told it, you this? It thing? was just, I was, told, I was just by myself. I was there, I was at home, mm-hmm. work from home. So, you know, I was home and, and uh, the detective just called. And so um, I, you know, after he gave me a little time to calm down. And then um, he said, this is the real bombshell. He dry, you know, even after all that, he said, so I thought, okay, this is the end of the story right here. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, he, after, he, after he let me calm down a little bit, he goes, Rosemary, they, the FDLE uh, agents want to talk to you. So are you ready to talk to them on the phone or you need a little bit more time? And I said, put them on the phone. Let's talk. So he connects me to this call with, um, got a room full, you know, the special agent, Mike Kennedy was there on the mm-hmm. phone. And then there was um, the uh, Major Scott Harden from Dixie County Sheriff's mm-hmm. Office. There was a few other individuals there in the room, and Agent Kennedy just comes right out and says, "We're gonna we've opened an investigation into this homicide. Um, there's a lot of information in the case file, just the information that you know we've received about it, and it looks like this is a solvable case. We're gonna." We've opened it up and, you know, we're going to try our best to figure out who did this to James. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty mind blowing because <laughs> so, I had no idea that it was going to take that turn. So what was the reaction uh, from your other family, from your siblings and whatnot? Like, how how did you break the news? Yeah. Down? Yeah, that that's um, that was pretty wild because. <clears throat> 
um, I called called my sister and I said, because my sister still live in town, and I said, hey, can I swing by? I just want to talk to you. So I came by, and yeah, they were they had the same sort of shock that I did because we're we're talking thirty six years later. Oh, sure, sure. And um, my brother, my a uh, couple of my other brothers, um, I called them and talked to them by phone and broke the news. Um, yeah, it's not the kind of thing that sinks in right away, that's for sure. I mean, I kind of said what it was and then let let that sink in for a while. And then we did a lot of talking by phone and in person mm-hmm. over the, you know, over the following week and t- two weeks. And we continue to have conversations about it to this day. I mean, it's oh, just sure. something that... <clears throat> pretty um you know that kind of rocked our world and um so yeah it was a it was a really you know a head um kind of it blew our minds you know did oh i i could imagine i mean after 35 years of or over 35 years of you know questions and they're, and they're finally answered in just one buccal swab pretty much yeah, you know, I mean, it was just like, um, you know, it, it it answered questions and, and opened up new ones, you know, that so, opened up some big ones that, big questions that, you know. So let me ask you this. Uh, how how do you think your parents would have reacted to this news? Yeah, that's really sad. My dad died in, in the year 2000, the end of the year mm-hmm. 2000. So and then. You know, we didn't get the ID till 10, you know, almost 11 years later, sure. just about 11 years later. And mom had already died too. Mom died in 2010 or mm-hmm. 20, 2007, sorry. So she passed on before she could ever find out. She, um, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I didn't think I was gonna get choked up, but yeah. Hey, it's okay. So <laughs> it's that, okay. That was, I mean, how would they have reacted? Um, when mom died, she, per her wishes, she chose to be cremated. Mm-hmm. And we had taken, you know, after she was cremated, we had the urn. And I kept it at my house. And we had originally intended to take it out and, you know, spring ashes somewhere out in the, um, the, somewhere out on the San Francisco Bay, you know, mm-hmm. or somewhere that was somewhere meaningful sure. in Yosemite or someplace beautiful. And we just kept saying, okay, well, soon, we'll do it soon. We'll do it soon. So then when this happened, all of a sudden it was like, oh God, we can find, we can actually bury them together. Mm-hmm. And, and that gave us a lot of, even though we couldn't give my mom the answers that she yearned for, Mm-hmm. Which you know, all those years we couldn't give her that. We thought, you know, we kind of feel we kind of know that they're together, and we could we could give them a beautiful burial site um, here in in um, Solano County, which we did, mm-hmm. and um, felt just felt really good. And I know that they that my mom, you know, would be pleased by that. Sure, I know that, and my and my dad. Um, my dad, who, you know, gave his son the same name as he has, you know, mm-hmm. had this other little boy who, you know, this tragic thing. 
ended up happening to him. Um, I think that they both have been very happy. I told the special agents in Florida, I said, man, my parents would have just, you know, you guys would have been their heroes. Absolutely. You know, for, for all your efforts. And, and, you know, who knows? Depending on what you believe, they maybe even helped in solving this case. <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to argue that point because I have, I definitely have feelings about this. There so many times through this whole long process, I've just seemed to feel that sort of, you know, guiding hand from mm -hmm. wherever that comes from, however you want to look at it. I'm, I'm a believer. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And so after you guys got the news, what actions were taken to recover James's remains and how, how did you guys get down to Florida? So, okay. So we were, we, after the identification, um, we, agent Kennedy had, you know, questions to help them move forward in their investigation. He mm -hmm. had questions about even minute details and I never asked him, what, you know, why you need to know something like that, you know, that thing. I just would, you know, put him in contact with any, and they were just a no stone left unturned. They were very, very thorough. And he said, okay, well, you know, the, once the medical examiner, I, I, I think, um, finishes their part of it. Um, you guys can arrange for uh, to to claim the remains, bring them home, and um, he said, if you want, you can come out here and get them yourself. Um, we we're gonna, you know, we'll have a press conference if you want to be part of that. And um, I, one of my sisters. And I said, absolutely, you know, so we lined it up, we got the uh, flight out and uh, we came out in April of 2011. Mm -hmm. And nice they did a press conference at the Dixie County um, Courthouse. Mm -hmm. And um, there was, they did newspaper and TV news coverage of that i coordinated with the funeral home there in Tallahassee, and um we were able to fly home on in plane with the remains and nice. um brought them home and had a beautiful memorial service and, and a, a burial with dignity um right. that was that was an amazing gift that unless this you know unless you've gone period of time with no place to grieve you, sure. you know you can't really really grasp what that feels like to finally be able to have a burial place you know give your love the dignity they deserve um you know which is something that his killers robbed us of and you know sure and and uh the law enforcement officials with the Dixie County Sheriff's Office and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, they were able to uh, show you guys where the locations were, like where the remains were found and other points of interest within the investigation? Um, yeah, I don't know whether they were. Um, we did want to see where where they found him, and I don't know that they were, you know, they if it was a 
you know, the general area. But yeah, we were able to go um, to this location um, around where Dixie and Taylor counties meet. Sure, yeah. Uh, right off that, uh, there's a highway there, so close to there. Like kind of like near Tennille, uh, right? Pardon me? Near near the little community of Tennille, right? Yeah, they they mm. they say thing they say it Tennille. Ah, I've, but, I've always been saying yeah, Tennille. <laughs> that's a that's a Florida pronunciation right there. Yes. They they I don't know, probably some people call it Tennille and some people but I remember they corrected me and said, No man, this is Tennille. <laughs> <laughs> so I okay, Tennille. Sure. But um, yeah, that free right in there, Tennille. Um they that was the area that and what was really struck my sister Kathy and me was that it was just really really beautiful there I mean what you know it's California and Florida is different as night and day as far as you know the landscape and everything is and uh, you know I was just like wow it is so beautiful around in this particular area and um and as I said, like everybody we met was so gracious and warm and loving and everything. And I thought it's just kind of opposite from what, in my mind, all those years I had thought of this place that, you know, swallowed up my brother kind of thing. And, you sure. know, just it was completely just different, flipped the script on me. And sure. I kind of had a whole different and, and people continue to this day to be very gracious and respectful to us to the family sure and and were you guys able to go to florida at any time between your brother's disappearance and the discovery did you ever go down south whatsoever oh great question actually um my one of my brothers the one who drove mom to san francisco to file the report he wanted to go to florida and look for jimmy and I remember the day he said that to my mom and my mom just started freaking out. She said, no, I've already lost one son. You're not going, you're not going. So this was something that was like never suggested again. It was like, no, that wherever Jimmy went, it, it swallowed up and you're not going there. Nobody is. (laughs) So it was all done by phone. Um, And then the PI, like I said, the private investigator, a team in Florida. I don't know how extensively they got out and did, you know, um, knocked on any doors or anything like that, but never, we never went there for any reason, no vacation, anything. It was like, um, had a bad association in our mind Sure. up, up until t- 2011 when, when I went. Sure. And that makes complete sense too. That that definitely does make sense. Uh, I wouldn't want to go anywhere where there's a you know a stain. You know that that definitely makes sense. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, what what is the current status of the case? Has there been any updates that are available to the public right now, or anything maybe you might want to share with us, or anything of that sort? Um, well, they, you know, we get, we continue to get updates when we request, um, the FDLE has been really good about, you know, um, and the investigators, you know, they always apologize, say, I'm sorry, we can't tell you everything, but 
Um, you know, I just want you to know that we're continuing to follow up on leads. And so we at some point found out that they were focusing their attention on a smuggling or a drug ring that was operating out of actually not out of Dixie County, but out of Citrus County, Florida. Mm-hmm. There was a, a drug ring operating at the time, 1974, in those years around there, where they, through their investigation, they had identified key individuals who were part of this ring, and somehow they are connected to my brother. So, mm. um, and that's where their focus, they told us at some point that they were focusing on this ring. And um, so that's, I mean, that was pretty so, big that that they were, you know, kind of divulged that. So, so are they insinuating that this so-called ring is still operating in Florida today? I don't, I didn't get the feeling that they were saying that this, that they're still carrying on with this activity, but I did get the feeling that that some or all of these individuals are still have a connection to to Citrus County sure. and surrounding areas. Whether being they, uh, they didn't tell me whether that means that they still live there or they still have family there. They still have. They just said they that there's a connection still with the area. So. Uh, you know, I was whenever they whenever they tell give us a little update. I never really, you know, ask too many questions because they always they, I think they're telling me what they're able to tell me. They're very very careful about preserving the integrity of their investigation. Mm-hmm. And of course, as family, we don't want to you know anything to to harm the, their efforts. So. Yeah, that was pretty interesting to me. I was like, okay, well, wow, these people are... But as far as are they still in operation, they didn't say it like that, and it never occurred to me that that would have been possible, that they were still doing what they were doing. I don't know. (laughs) Wow. Well, I mean, you know, if they're still out there operating, I'm sure... I'm sure that they're moving on to the bigger stuff, you know, nowadays, because it's, you know, the the drug trafficking you know, situation in America is just getting up there. It's, it's insane. (laughs) So, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it's now the bigger and bigger stuff. And, um, yeah. And I really, go ahead. It seems to me that it's like, um, uh, um, if they were still involved in the same sort of thing, I mean, the odds would be against that they would hadn't been arrested by now, you know, because we're talking 40. Oh, yes something years now so i sure. yeah i didn't get the feeling i don't know though until you mentioned that i didn't even that hadn't occurred to me but um but they i mean they've, they've got people they've identified as being part of that ring that was operating in mm. the period of time when jimmy went there interesting so, interesting because i mean yeah. i'm sure probably they found some evidence of the scene that might pinpoint them and probably, perhaps, some of these people are incarcerated today in, in a Florida prison somewhere. Yeah, I don't know. So um, I just, um, whoever did it, I hope, you know, that I, they're going to, I think they're going to solve it. That's oh. what I believe. It, and it sounds like heart. it. Hey, I just feel like these, those investigators are 
extremely determined. They are, I would want to have them um, after me. <laughs> They're like yeah. pit bulls. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No. Absolutely. And, and FDLE continues to be an integral part of solving Florida's top cold cases. In fact, you know, they, they, they participated in a number of programs. I know one of them was the, uh, the cold case playing cards. Because I'd heard of the cold case playing cards. Yeah. That, so the way, so the, from what I understand, this was started by someone, maybe an FBLE, yeah. who started this. I had this, you know, brilliant idea of creating a deck of cards with case information on the other mm -hmm. side where they could be distributed to inmates. Yep. Um, you know, these inmates want to play cards to pass the time, mm -hmm. have nothing but time on their hands, and they can, you know, look at these cold cases and say, hey, I know something about this. Uh, and so just winding out here, um, what do you think James's legacy will be going forward? I think that the, the whole the, the legacy is about eternal eternal love and loyalty and how just not giving up i think that it is also a message about man's inhumanity to man it's a message about how thought thoughtless you know uh soulless people can just cut someone down like that totally rob them of their of all the joy that life can bring and go on about their, their own pitiful lives. Um, and it's about just how that affects a family, how that affects people who love that person. And, and it steals them. What could have this life become? What, what would have Jimmy done with his life? I think that it's about persistence, not giving up, not, not, you know, letting, something pass it's just like you know it's someone did this and what it you know what beyond my personal experience with this tragedy what is that what are the lessons can it be for the family okay well for, in my case it's you know I learned a hell of a lot by conducting my own investigation by figuring out how to navigate the system by learning about what resources are out there so I'm going to help other people i'm going to i know what it feels like i'm going to you know help people who don't know what to do next and so you know that's why i volunteer with trying to help in, in missing persons investigations do what i can mm -hmm. i'm a you know i i guess that that's really what it boils down to the lesson my brother's you know life and death is is you know just this can be a real cruel world well it's up to it's up to people to to make sure that you know that sort of evil does triumph you know and it's and it's helping people cope with life's tragedies and i don't know sure and so bringing it home uh, any final thoughts like any Anything you want to say or uh, yeah, thank um, you. You're assistance. asking the right people, right person. And you're saying if any final thoughts, if you have anything to say, because <laughs> <laughs> I've always got something to say. I'll try not to be oh, too lengthy. Take your time. Take your uh -huh. time. <laughs> but um, 
I think, okay, it's like for advice that I always give people, it's like for any families of the long-term missing, if I can get across any message, it's, you know, it's up to you a lot of times to keep your loved one's story alive. And don't just sit there at home and complain that the, you know, police aren't doing enough or whatever. Well, they've got a lot going on. They've got a lot of other cold cases, got contemporary crime. Your loved one, it doesn't mean that your loved one's not important to them. It means that there's a lot of work to be done there. And it's up to you a lot of times to be, make sure that your loved one's not forgotten. The way you do that is you, you get dialed in with the missing persons community out there, the fam, other family members. Uh, number one thing though, is you establish a positive cooperative relationship with your law enforcement. Don't let it get to the point, no matter how you, you know, it's like some people are very anti-police. I know that that's it's like, okay, I have no talk. I have no patience for that. Um, but here you're asking them for help. Don't make them, don't create this adversarial relationship. You have to accept their, you know, that they've got constraints of their time and, you know, limitations to what they can do. Don't make them, don't put them on your outside, you know, try to help. And um, so in in way of keeping your story alive, your loved one's story alive, create a website. That sounds like something too hard to do. No, it's not. Um, ask for any teenager can help you do that. Sure. Um, and then there's, you know, websites that are very, very user friendly. You could get even get a free website. Just Google that. Um, use social media. If you've got a Facebook account, you could set up a page for your loved one. Um, I had one before um, about James is missing. Well, that became now my my Facebook page is <coughs> is called um, Who Killed James Norris, mm-hmm. and it kind of serves as another portal to my website where I tell the story. And sure. from my website or from the Facebook page, I I encourage people to call tips into FDLE to Crime Stoppers. So establish relationships with your local Crime Stoppers. Um, just try to try to tell the human side of the story, who your who your you know fam- beloved family member is, and um, you know, and also try to do a good turn to help other people with their cases. They're going to help you with yours. They'll, you know, publicize the missing persons. They'll help you with yours. I know that, you know, in part of becoming an advocate, you get dialed in with, you know, larger resources. Um, something I've, I worked last year, California had their first ever missing in California statewide missing person event. It was uh, held in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And um, law enforcement agencies from all over the state participated. It was a one-stop shop. Mamus was there to, um, they were collecting, they were taking new reports, taking DNA, um, reviving older missing persons cases. They were, um, so those sort of events are springing up. More about that um, is on facebook.com forward slash CA missing. So it stands for California Missing, facebook.com forward slash CA Missing. And that is going to be held again, their second one, which I am also going to be working at June 8th 
2019 from 10 to 4 at Sac State. You would call ahead. They'll get a reservation for a slot time for your to talk to law enforcement. But and then the other big piece of advice that I have for families of long term missing is is get to know NamUs. NamUs is the most important asset. And it's a huge, huge value, just hugely valuable tool for people missing loved ones. Civilians can use it. I mean, it's like the FBI's database NCIC is not accessible by civilians. Sure. But NamUs, NamUs is like a repository where all the case information gets stored. So anybody anywhere can access it and see, you know, the public doesn't have access to the full file. They won't be able to see everything. But you can look at unidentified remains, cases that were around the time or place or had, you know, you might be able to civilians sometimes connect the dots and find, you know, missing people through NamUs. It happens all the time. So, yeah, and, you know, it's a huge asset. So if you and that is NamUs is I should probably spell that out. It's written uppercase N, A, M, uppercase U, S. So it's the National Missing and Unidentified System. So if you go to NamUs.org or just Google NamUs, you'll find out it's a it's a national nationwide resource for missing and identified people. So but that's probably if you do nothing else, check out NamUs. And like I said, I entered my brother's case myself. So civilians can even enter a case. It's vetted, though, they don't just publish anybody's case. They will go to the law enforcement that collected the report and they will vet the information, go make sure that everything's accurate before it's published. So that's what they did in my brother's case. And then it ended up being solved because someone in FDLE entered their information into NamUs. So that's what can happen for, you know. Absolutely. Well, Rosemary, it was great to have you on. It was a great conversation. And I really hope that we can help and get it, James get James's message out there, get this case out there, uh, hopefully get it solved. Uh, I know this, 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 these shows are not miracle working shows, but as long as we can get the kernel of information out there, that's all that really yeah. matters. And uh, absolutely, I mean, it's like um, I just really, really appreciate you having taking this interest and in giving me this platform to communicate with your audience. And um, I'm just really impressed the amount of research you did. I mean, that's amazing that you <laughs> your questions were all really really good ones. And I just feel so grateful to you, Jake. And, um, for giving me this opportunity. Well, it was so, uh, it was and, a pleasure. Yeah, and, and and please, if your audience can just check out www.whokilledjamesnorris.com, um, you'll see photos of Jimmy. You'll see some more information there, and then also um, I'm on Facebook at uh, Who Killed James Norris. You could just search for that page, and then again, the plug for the Missing in California statewide event can be found Facebook forward slash CA missing.
Awesome. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Rosemary. Okay. Thank you, Jason, for all you do. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. This was a very deep interview, and I must say of all the interviews that I've ever done, and, and they've been very few, uh, this particular interview was probably by far one of the best interviews that I ever did. And I'm just so thankful that Rosemary agreed to do this interview and get her brother's story out there. Because not a lot of people know about this story, especially people like, let's say, people who live in Illinois or Michigan or Oregon or Washington State. Hell, people in Canada don't know about this case. And that's why we're here, to showcase these criminal cases so that way people know something about them. Because if they have information on these cases, they can come forward and they can report what they know. And with that, thank you so much, Rosemary, for allowing me to interview you and for being so awesome through the whole thing. And I know probably it's one of the toughest things that you have to do is recount a story, you know, from so long ago that was a very painful memory. Because it's tough. It's definitely tough. So with that, I want to thank everybody for listening in to this very first pilot episode of In-Depth. And stay tuned because we will have more episodes of In-Depth in the near future. And we're hoping to get another episode rolled out in May. And we'll keep everybody informed of who our next guest will be. We're working out a few things, but I want to make sure I keep these, you know, under the hat for, for, for a little bit. So with that being said, folks, thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. And we will see you on the next episode of True Cold Case Files, where... We will be taking questions and and we'll answer them. And to the best of our ability, of course. So if you have any questions you would like to ask me or any of the crew here at True Cold Case Files or JPM Productions or anywhere else, feel free to share them. They can be good questions. They can be bad questions. They can be horrible questions. They can be insulting questions. Uh, (laughs) Just go for it ask away. So that'll do it. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you again soon.